Hello, my name is Kate Chesterman. I'm a GP in South Norfolk and I also co-host the GP Notebook Education Study Groups. Welcome to GP Notebook Podcasts, where we present bite-sized topics aimed at all those working in primary care. You can find us on all major podcast channels, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at GP Notebook, or you can follow me personally at Chesterman Kate for more information about our new podcasts and study groups as they become available. Please do visit gpnotebookpodcast.com for show notes, references and resources for all our podcasts. Finally, you can also visit gpnotebookeducation.com to learn more about our upcoming GP Notebook study groups and download free resources such as our series of shortcuts. Now today I'm going to be discussing malnutrition in COPD and my main resource for this topic is the excellent document Managing Malnutrition in COPD produced by the Malnutrition Pathway and there's a link to this document in the show notes for this podcast. So throughout this podcast we're going to consider the four stages of care in this important condition which are firstly how to identify the malnutrition, then how to assess its severity, followed by how to manage the malnutrition, including the use of oral nutritional supplements, and finally how and when to review the interventions. But before we do all this, let's consider how a patient might present in primary care by considering a typical case. Iris is a 78-year-old lady who has been a patient at the practice for over 30 years and she's well-known and well-liked by practice staff. She has a diagnosis of COPD and for a long time has been stable with a long-acting muscarinic antagonist, long-acting beta agonist combination inhaler. Sadly, 18 months ago, Iris's husband passed away after he was diagnosed with metastatic bowel cancer. Iris's health has also deteriorated. Over the past 12 months, she has had three infective exacerbations of her COPD and on one occasion needed to be admitted to hospital. Her treatment now includes the addition of a steroid inhaler. Iris recently came for a long-term condition review and it was noted that she was looking frail, breathless and that she had lost weight over the last six months. When asked about her weight, Iris admitted to having lost interest in food. She did not enjoy cooking just for herself. She frequently did not feel hungry, didn't like the taste of a lot of food and, by the end of the day, often felt too tired to prepare a meal. So before we move on to considering how we manage malnutrition, let's have a think about what malnutrition is and why it is important. Malnutrition is defined as a deficiency of energy, protein and other nutrients that causes adverse effects on the body, the way it functions and importantly on clinical outcomes. And there are several biological, psychological and social reasons why a patient with COPD is at risk of malnutrition. And we identified several of these in IRIS, our case study. COPD itself can cause malnutrition due to increased energy and protein requirements resulting from shortness of breath and inflammation. 
and the medication used to treat the COPD can also have detrimental effects on nutrition. Inhaled treatments can alter taste and cause a dry mouth, and steroids can affect muscle mass and bone density. Long-term conditions can have consequences for a patient's mental health, and depression and anxiety are common, which can impact on appetite. And social factors are also hugely important. Isolation, difficulty in getting to the shops to purchase food, bereavements, all have impacts on a patient's ability to manage their nutritional needs. Studies have shown that malnutrition can have significant consequences for patients with COPD, resulting in reduced muscle function and strength, difficulty carrying out normal activities, reduced immunity, more frequent and longer hospital admissions, and increased mortality. So a low BMI, and particularly low muscle mass, is associated with poorer outcomes in COPD. But by improving nutrition, we can help to maintain lung strength and improve a patient's ability to both overcome infections and carry out their activities of daily living. Malnutrition can develop over a prolonged period, or it can happen very quickly, for example, following an acute illness. So we need to be watchful, and we need to screen for malnutrition at first clinical contact, where there is a change in the patient's physical, mental or social health, and on at least an annual basis, but more frequently for those who are at increased risk. In the NICE guidance on nutrition support for adults, it is stated that screening should assess body mass index and percentage unintentional weight loss and should also consider the time over which nutrient intake has been unintentionally reduced and or the likelihood of future impaired nutrient intake. So it is important that we do not rely on BMI alone. Patients can be malnourished despite a normal or even raised BMI, and a high BMI can mask unintentional weight loss. The NICE guidance for COPD also highlights that we need to pay attention to weight change in older people, especially if they've lost more than 3 kilograms or 10% of their body weight in six months. A validated screening tool, such as the Malnutrition Universal Screening Tool, or MUST, can be very helpful in this screening process. And remember that a high MUST score is a predictor for risk of death and readmission in patients with COPD. The MUST score is easy to calculate. It uses just three parameters. Firstly, the patient's current BMI. Secondly, their percentage unintentional weight loss in the last three to six months. And lastly, an acute disease effects score, whereby a patient scores an extra two points if they are acutely unwell and are unlikely to have any nutritional input for five days. This final part is probably seen more frequently in inpatients rather than in the community. I've put a link to the MUST score in the show notes, but essentially with these parameters, we generate a score of between zero and six where zero is low risk, one is medium risk, and two or more is high risk. 
In some patients, it might be difficult to assess their BMI, maybe because they are bedbound or have edema. And in these patients, we can either rely on a clinical impression, so if we can see that they look thin, that they have lost a significant amount of weight, and we know that their oral intake is poor due to lack of appetite or inability to eat, then we can assume that they are at high risk. Our other option for estimating BMI is to use a mid-upper arm circumference. And if the mid-upper arm circumference is less than 23 centimetres, then this often indicates a BMI of less than 20. So we've now identified the malnutrition and categorised its severity, and we need to go on to think about how we will manage it. So firstly, for those who have a MUSC score of zero and are at low risk, these patients need routine clinical care, but can still benefit from some dietary advice and a reiteration of the importance of maintaining their nutritional status. So we can advise about protein and carbohydrate intake and having regular small frequent meals and snacks. We can also talk about symptom management with regards to their eating. And there's a very good NHS webinar that I've put a link to that has some excellent advice. So for patients with a dry mouth, it can be helpful to choose soft, moist foods and add sauces. Cooking in a slow cooker will make meat a lot softer. And it also means that meals can be prepared in the mornings when your patient may feel that they have more energy. For this reason, it can also be helpful to swap meals around and maybe have a cooked breakfast or the main meal at lunchtime rather than in the evening when they're tiring. It's important for those with satiety issues not to fill up on fluids during a meal, and so you can advise sipping fluids during the meal, but drinking plenty between meals to keep hydrated. Many patients may have taste disturbance, and it can be helpful to gargle with water after using steroid inhalers, maintain their oral hygiene, and to try spicy or sharp foods that have a stronger taste. And finally, for those who are fatigued, encourage them to accept help. We all know that this can be very difficult for some patients, but there are often friends, family, or even voluntary organisations who can provide help, particularly with making sure that patients have a good supply of nutritious and easily accessible food in their homes. Stopping smoking can also be encouraged and, if successful, can result in an increased appetite and improvements in taste and smell. I would recommend giving these low-risk patients the green leaflet from the malnutrition pathway, which is called Eating Well for Your Lungs, which covers a lot of these points. And these patients should have at least annual monitoring, but this needs to be done more frequently if they are at increased risk of developing malnutrition in the future. The British Association of Parental and Enteral Nutrition also suggests a self-screening tool that patients could undertake every three to six months to help monitor their own risk. And again, there's a link to this in the show notes. So that's the management of those at low risk. But what additional steps do we need to take for those who are at medium or high risk of malnutrition? The first thing we need to do is to establish our goals of treatment and decide what we are hoping to achieve. 
This may vary depending on the stage of the disease, but possible goals could be to improve respiratory function or mobility, maintain weight during exacerbations, or to increase weight and muscle mass. It's been shown that there can be functional improvements with as little as 2 kilograms of weight gain for those who are undernourished. In those who are palliative, it may be more appropriate to try slowing the rate of weight loss and to preserve function. But whatever you decide is the most appropriate goal, understanding and agreeing the aims of treatment will help you monitor the interventions and decide if they have been successful. For patients at medium risk, which is those who scored 1 on the MUST score, we need to observe closely. Again, they need good dietary advice. And the yellow leaflet, Improving Your Nutrition in COPD, is invaluable. It has a section on making the most of your food to try to prevent further weight loss that includes advice on buying full-fat alternatives, adding cheese and cream to meals, putting extra butter or mayonnaise in sandwiches and adding honey or jam to breakfasts. It also suggests fortifying milk with milk powder and to have nourishing drinks like smoothies, milkshakes or hot chocolate. Powdered nutritional supplements can also be made up with water or milk and provide extra energy and nutrients. Gently increasing a patient's activity level can also be useful to try to build muscle mass, but advise high-energy snacks after exercise to avoid further weight loss, and those undergoing pulmonary rehabilitation should be receiving nutritional support as part of this. Remember that previous healthy eating advice that the patient has probably been receiving for years may have to be altered to support an increased calorie intake and this can be a big adjustment for some patients. Another consideration when thinking about nutrition in this cohort of patients with COPD is that they are at high risk for osteoporosis due to repeated use of steroids, poor mobility and lack of sunlight. So be mindful of their vitamin D and calcium intake. Patients at medium risk should be monitored every one to three months depending on their clinical condition and more frequently if there are acute concerns. These interventions and monitoring should be maintained until they become low risk, so until their MUS score reverts to zero. But if they are deteriorating despite these actions, then they should be managed as high risk. High risk patients, those that have a MUS score of two or more, need more active treatment in addition to the dietary and lifestyle advice and the consideration of social requirements already discussed. So provide the red leaflet, nutrition support in COPD. And in these patients, we need to be considering the use of oral nutritional supplements. Oral nutritional supplements are recommended in all those with COPD and a BMI less than 20 or with a MUST score of two or more. Patients who are acutely unwell and trying to minimise weight loss, patients who are malnourished or those who are working to gain muscle mass with exercise should be aiming for up to 1.5 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. This can be difficult to achieve in those with a poor appetite, shortness of breath or fatigue 
And so oral nutritional supplements can be a good way of supplementing the diet and increasing the intake of protein, carbohydrate and micronutrients. There is good evidence for the use of oral nutritional supplements, with studies showing that they can help to increase weight and function, reduce complications, admissions and mortality, and improve quality of life without reducing the intake of normal food. Standard oral nutritional supplements provide around 300 kilocalories, 12 grams of protein, and a full range of minerals and vitamins per serving. The ONS pathway suggests prescribing two supplements per day for up to 12 weeks. I think a good practical approach is to prescribe a starter pack initially, which has 60 supplements, so a month's worth, with a variety of flavours and textures. After a month, you can then check compliance and then continue prescribing according to the patient's preferences. Another consideration when prescribing ONS is that for patients with shortness of breath or poor appetite, a high-protein, high-energy but low-volume supplement may improve compliance, as these smaller volumes help to avoid postprandial dyspnea and satiety. After three months, we should again review our patient to see if the nutritional goals are being met. If they are, then we can reinforce the dietary advice, maximise their nutritional intake and consider using powdered nutritional supplements. We could consider reducing or stopping the oral nutritional supplements if, for example, the agreed goals have been met and they are no longer at risk of malnutrition or if the acute illness has passed and they are clinically stable, or if they are back to eating and drinking at a level which meets their nutritional needs. Going forward, we could then manage them as medium risk with close monitoring and being alert to any signs of deterioration that might trigger us to step them back up to high risk. If patients are not meeting their goals after three months, then it is important to check compliance and we can also consider a referral to a specialist dietitian for further support and advice. We should continue to monitor every three to six months or sooner if there is a change in their condition. We've illustrated that malnutrition is a complex condition with biopsychosocial causes and implications and it is therefore appropriate to involve the wider multidisciplinary team in its management. There may be a role, not just for primary care practitioners and dietitians, but also occupational therapists, physiotherapists, speak, speech and language therapists, pharmacists and social prescribers, as well as the patient's family and friends. And finally... I just wanted to highlight that weight loss can be due to other conditions. Maybe, for example, your patient with COPD has developed a malignancy. It is important to consider other causes and factors that may be contributing to malnutrition, but we should not delay nutritional support in an undernourished patient while excluding other etiologies. So assess and treat the patient's nutritional status while investigating because whatever the cause of the weight loss, their outcome may well be improved by treating their malnutrition. Thank you for listening, and I hope that this has been helpful.
please feel free to get in touch via social media or email me at kchesterman at gpnotebook.com if you have any questions, comments or ideas for future podcasts. <laughs>